Good morning. Our scripture for today comes from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And he, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. It is so good to start our week in worship. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me in your Bible to that passage, which is in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. You're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while. We are so grateful that you are here. You're joining us at an exciting time because this season we are exploring through the book of Genesis the attributes of God. Seeing who he is and what it is that sets him apart because we want to know God more so that we can trust God more. Because isn't it true that if we don't know God, we can't trust God? We cannot trust a God we do not know. And I've seen this demonstrated through my life in so many ways and not just with God. But if I don't know someone or if I don't know something, I struggle to trust them. Like just last night, my wife and I, we were packing up around the house, getting some things together. And something that happens very rarely happened last night. We forgot that we hadn't had dinner. Now, normally I never let my wife forget. I start reminding her after breakfast that we're always looking forward to dinner. But last night we just got so busy with family and packing for vacation and so many things, we realized that we'd forgotten dinner. And so I suggested, why don't we grab some Chinese takeout from the place down the road that we like to go? And I asked my wife if she would order it. So she pulls up online and she says, oh no, they're under new management. And I thought, I don't know new, new management. Like I liked old management. I liked the way they did egg rolls. Like I liked the way they did fried rice. And I was like, I don't know, should we try it? Or should we find a new place? And she's like, let's just try it. So nonetheless, she asked what I wanted. I looked at the menu. I was like, I told her what I thought I wanted, which ended up being the wrong thing because I don't read Chinese. But nonetheless, it came and it was pretty good. But it demonstrated to me last night that in like every area of life, if I don't know someone, man, I'm hesitant to trust someone. Turns out I think most Chinese takeout places get their food from the exact same place. They heat it up the exact same way. And it all tastes pretty much the same. But the, ba the bigger story is we as Christians are called to live our life under new management. Like we are called to exchange that which is common, which comes naturally, what is normal for the holy that God has for us. We are called to live our life with God and for God under the authority of God. And we cannot trust a God 
We do not know. And so we're flying through the book of Genesis from this point forward, using this first book of the Bible as a guide because it's where we first meet God. It's where we find out who he is and what it is that sets him apart. And we've covered some significant ground so far, and we've learned a lot about God. We've seen already that God is infinite and he is incomprehensible. He is more majestic and marvelous than we are ever going to be able to wrap our mind around, yet he makes himself known to us. That God is good and that everything that comes from God is good. That there is no, nothing in God that is not good. We've seen that God is eternal. He was there in the beginning and before the beginning, he has always been. God is eternal. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. God did not create you and God did not create me because he was lonely. That God has created, brought into existence everything that exists because he exists. And last week we saw that God is immutable, that he is unchanging because he is already infinitely perfect. We've seen all of this in just the first 10 chapters of Genesis, the account of creation, the story of the fall as man separated themselves from God as they introduced sin into the world, and the story of God wiping the slate clean and starting over with the flood. Today, as we turn our page in our Bible to Genesis chapter 11, we're seeing that the people of God begin to establish themselves again, and the families of God begin to grow. So we're going to see this story unfold here in Genesis chapter 11, and we'll see an attribute of God that will set him above the rest. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 starts this way. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, take note of that, we'll come back to it, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And so you kind of see the story begin to unfold. We skipped Genesis chapter 11, but if you, or sorry, Genesis chapter 10, but if you were to look back on it, you would see that the genealogy shows us that the families of the people of God are beginning to grow. And at this time, as the people grow, they have one language. That would be pretty, that would be like incredibly helpful if it was still the same way today, wouldn't it? You would never order the wrong Chinese food because you didn't understand what you were ordering, right? But in those days, they had one language and the people migrated from the East. Now I point that out because there's more there than just the cardinal direction. If you remember when Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden and they were evicted from the Garden, they traveled to the east. If you don't remember, see what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. It says, therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so you see this, this movement of Adam and Eve when they're evicted from the garden of Eden, they move to the east and God sets there on the east side of the garden, the cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden. And you don't think too much about it in this story, but the movement of the people of God continues eastward. When their son Cain kills their other son Abel, he moves further away from the presence of God as he moves East, Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, what? East of Eden. And it shows us that the natural movement of the people is away from the presence of God, whether it's sin or the sin of selfishness or something that causes us to stumble further and further away from God. The natural movement of people is away from God. We say it all the time around here. We don't drift towards God. 
right? It takes intentionality. It takes community. It takes starting our week in worship. It, starts, it takes showing up with God every Sunday and showing up to spend time with God every day because we don't drift in the direction of God. We drift away from God. And the more we, uh, we compromise, the further our drift from God is. And we see it this way in so many areas of life. One easy illustration that might hit too close to home for some of us as we think about our past is like when we make just one compromise and we think it's just one compromise, like I'm just going go to go on one date with a man or a woman that does not love the Lord or fear him. It's just one date, like no harm, no foul. And then the next week you think I'm just going to compromise one more time. I'm just going to go on one more date. Then we're going to cuddle up on the couch, and then we're going to start spending more time together. Next thing you know, you're sleeping together every Friday night wondering why God isn't blessing you or your relationship. And what we see is the same story repeated throughout history that the natural direction when we're left to ourselves is to drift away from the presence of God. Adam and Eve evicted from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. They moved to the east. Cain kills his brother. Things get worse. He moves to the east. Still in the story, the people of God moving away from the presence of God in the blessing of God, as the people quote unquote make progress, they're moving further and further away from the presence of God. Don't we do the same thing today? We say, man, we're making progress when in reality we're moving away from the presence of God. They find a little piece of land in the plain of Shinar and they settle there. And we read that and we think like, well, now what's wrong with that, right? That sounds nice. Isn't that all of our goal? To find a little plot of ground, a little piece of land to settle down, to put down roots, to get comfortable, to grow old sitting on the front porch? Here's the problem. That wasn't what God called his people to do. Like we've talked about this so many times already in this series that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image to reflect his glory. And he gave them a mandate. He commissioned them to fill the earth reflecting the glory of God. Genesis chapter one, verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Shows us that the animals can live from one meal to the next. The animals can spend all their time thinking about where they're going to bed down for the night. But people were created to live life with purpose, to reflect the glory of God. And we saw last week that even after sin entered the world and everything spiraled out of control, when God wiped the slate clean and started over with Noah, after the flood, after the flood water subsided, God gave them the same mandate. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, he reiterated to them in chapter 9, verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Like how many different ways can God say to his people that you were created to live life for a purpose and that purpose is to fill the earth reflecting the glory of God. Adam and Eve, this is your purpose. Noah, we're starting over with you. Your family's purpose to fill the earth, to reflect glory to God. And the problem is the people of God were naturally moving away from the presence of God and forsaking the purpose of God. And instead of living a life of obedience and purpose and significance, they decided they wanted to settle in, settle down, and get comfortable. Let's be honest. From our perspective, our selfish, sinful, inwardly focused perspective, their decision honestly makes sense, doesn't it? Because like we are all drawn towards this kind of comfort. Like we know, 
when we read the scripture, like that this God, we stand in awe of him. It should change the way we live today. We know that he created us to reflect his glory to the world around us, but there's something in us that's this natural draw towards comfort, inconvenience. Maybe it's just me, but like I find this uh, temptation in every area of life, and I realize that it infiltrates and affects every decision I make, from big decisions to small decisions. I've shared this before, like we travel to other parts of the country where there's churches everywhere. There's big churches on every street corner. And I say to my, my wife, I say, how nice would it be to raise our family in a place like this where you could throw a stone from the front porch of one large church to another church. And, and like, it'd be so fun to do ministry in a place like this. And God reminds us, man, I didn't call you to be comfortable. I called you to make a difference where I've established you. I realize that I think about it when I wake up and when I uh, think about like what, 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 even what I think about. I have to make it disciplined to think about the things that God has for us because we have a draw towards comfort. But God didn't call us to convenience and comfort from Adam and Eve to Noah to the New Testament church. He's called us to fill the earth to reflect his glory. Now, it looks a little different today. Jesus' final words to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 says this. It says, And Jesus said to them, right before he ascends back to the Father's right hand after his crucifixion and his resurrection, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does he say? He says, go therefore and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think this is so fascinating. Leave that up on the screen for us for just a minute. Because this, the, the mandate of God, the commission that God gave his people from start to finish has been the same. Make disciples, reflect my glory. So what is the church to do? To settle down in a comfortable piece of land? No, it's, we are called to make disciples as we go, wherever we go. I know some of you think like, man, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Like, I, where am I going to go to make disciples? At home. Like you have kids, like your job, your primary job is to disciple them, to look more like Jesus, to lead them, to love God, right? That is your mandate at home. You think, man, I'm just going to school. Where am I supposed to make disciples? At school. Like God has placed you on a mission field. And some of you are on scholarship to go there. Like you're being paid to make disciples in a secular environment, make disciples there. Or in your place of work, you're a missionary, making disciples, inviting people to follow you as you follow Jesus. The grocery store, everywhere you go, as you go, make disciples. The people in Genesis chapter 11, they're traveling along, reflecting the glory of God, but they're moving away from God, looking for an opportunity to settle in, settle down, and get comfortable. Verse 3, their plan continues to unfold. It says, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, the significance of that is somewhat lost to time. But what it shows us as we dig in is that they have second-rate building materials for their plans. They have bricks instead of stone and bitumen, which was like caulking, waterproofing instead of mortar. It was kind of sticky, but it wasn't really going to get the job done. It might get the job done for a while, but it would not stand the test of time. And so it is every time we are tempted to build a life based on our own strength. If we're not following God, we're always settling for second best, sacrificing what will stand the test of time for what is readily available now. And then in verse 4, really the focus text for our study today says this. It says, then they said, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. We'll come back to that in a minute. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now that's one verse buried in the middle of the story, but it's really like the turning point for the book of Genesis. And it's going to reveal for us, we're going to see next week, the, the redemptive plan. But this is where mankind has once again made it all about themselves. I mean, just this first one, come, let us build for ourselves. Instead of, instead of reflecting the glory of God for the glory of God and the people around them, they're thinking, how can we settle in and how can we get comfortable? And the crazy thing is they even recognize that their comfort is forsaking their calling, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And we read that and we think, yeah, that would make sense. They want to settle into a city, but that's not what God called them to. They were willing to settle for second best and trade a little bit of security for the purpose for which God had called them. And I don't know how this story was taught to you if you heard this story growing up. Anyone read this story in Sunday school? It was always taught to me this way. In fact, I think it's still being taught in children's Bibles. I know it is because I had uh, read this story just this past week to my daughters from their children's Bible. And it teaches the story this way, that uh, the people in Babel wanted to build a tower to reach the presence of God. And I know why they, they read it that way, because it says, come, let us build for ourselves a city. We never talk about the city. We'll come back to that in a second. And a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, I really think that's just a, a Bible way of saying we want to build a really tall tower. Like, how do you describe how tall it is? Well, I don't know. We don't have stories in those days, you know, two stories, 10 stories. Let's just, let's just build it to its tops in the heavens. I don't, maybe, maybe they wanted to build a tower to reach the throne room of God. I'm not sure they thought that was possible. It seems kind of silly because even then, I think they understood that God is set apart that he is unreachable, that he stands above creation, which tells us the attribute of God, that God is holy. He is set apart. He is unreachable despite man's best efforts, that nothing we do based on our strength or our wisdom will allow us to reach the throne room of God. God is set apart. God is holy. What in the world does this mean? It means that God is not of this world. He, of course, created the world. He operates within the world, but he is set apart from the world in every way. He is separate. He is set apart. He is unreachable. We could define holiness this way. The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and also the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. And we're going to talk about what flows from that in a minute and how it changes the way we live today. But what we see from the very beginning is that God is set apart. I really don't think that the people in Babel are trying to build a tower to reach the throne room of God because there's something in all of us that knows that we cannot reach God. I think they were forsaking God's holiness by trying to make a name for themselves because God is morally perfect. So much so that there's no sin in him. And there's something about his holiness that draws us in. But at the same time, when we recognize God's holiness, it instills in us a reverent fear, knowing that there's no way we can stand in his presence. I love the way Isaiah chapter 6 lays this out for us. Isaiah gets a glimpse 
to the throne room. He says this, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. He sees God seated on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And I don't pretend to be able to understand the, the whole imagery represented here, but what we see is these creatures that are standing in God's presence, even though they are without sin, they are covering their eyes. and They're kind of pointing to one another and saying, like, he is holy. They're not beholding the holiness of God because God is set apart. At the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4, we find John invited again, once again, to get a glimpse into the throne room. As he recounts this for the church, he says in Revelation 4, 1 and 2, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then he goes on to describe it this way. He says, and around the throne on each side of him were all kinds of creatures, four of which were living creatures, each of them with six wings, eyes full all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it shows us this imagery in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is set apart, like that he is unreachable. He is absolutely morally perfect. He is holy. He is, uh, he is distinct from his creation. And even those in his presence cannot bear to look upon him. All throughout scripture, we see this. And so I think it does illustrate from the story of the Tower of Babel that they didn't think they could reach the presence of God, but there was a problem. They were trying to make a name for themselves. And in doing so, they were not recognizing God's holiness, that their purpose was to reflect his glory. So if they were trying to build a tower, even their feeble efforts were bound to fall far short. But Genesis chapter 11, verse 5 says this. It says, the Lord came down to see the tower, the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. This is kind of funny actually. Uh, they're trying to build this impressive tower to make a name for themselves whose top will be in the heavens. And God says, we have to go down and see it. And it shows like man's best effort to get up to God and God still has to come down. I love that God has created us to be creative, right? My daughter, my four-year-old daughter is, is very creative and she's always trying to, to draw things and build things. And every day around our house before dinner time, she says, daddy, daddy, come see what I made. And the story is the same no matter what she's trying to build. To build. I, I go over and I see it and I say, oh, that is, that is beautiful. What is it? And she has some kind of story. It's, you know, it's, it's a church or it's a car or it's whatever. It bears no resemblance to it. And I feel bad. I mean, I know she's only four, but she's like put all of her energy and effort to building this thing. And she's so proud of it. And I stand over it and I try to be excited, but I have to like kind of look down or stoop down and like, this is so beautiful. Right? Like it's a nice effort, but it falls far short. It's funny when it's a child. But these people in Genesis chapter 11 had staked their entire life and all their effort on building something to make a name for themselves. And the king of kings and the Lord of lords says, let's go down and see what the children of man have made. Verse 6, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do from this point forward will be impossible for them. 
I think this reveals for us that this was really a matter of the heart. It's not as much as they were trying to actually reach God, but they had rejected God as holy in their hearts. They forsook his instruction in starting and putting themselves at the center of the universe so that everything would reflect them or revolve around them. God says, look at the evil they will come up with if this is allowed to continue uninterrupted. And so God looks down and he says, it's not like he's afraid of them, like what they're going to be able to come up with. God sees if, if there's no division among these people, we are able to create all kinds of evil. I think we saw that illustrated in the past couple weeks over in the Middle East, and we don't need to get into it at this point. I think we see the story unfolding, but I was just blown away what life looks like when you take God fully out of the equation. Like the pictures and the imagery and the, the reality of people living over in the Middle East, like you recognize that the terror inflicted on the nation of Israel is from a people who do not recognize the holiness of God. And I was, I was thinking like how often I take what God has instilled in us for granted. I take for granted that I recognize that God is good, that I am confined to follow him with my life because of my love and affection for him. And even my feeble efforts are still informed by the holiness and the righteousness of God. I think when God looks down and he says, these are one people, they have one language. This is the only the beginning of the evil they will impose on this world and nothing will be impossible for them. So what does God do? Verse seven, he says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Which again, I think is ironic because God had given the people a mandate to fill the earth, to reflect the glory of God. And they tried everything they could to build a city, to stay safe, to stay secure, to get comfortable, to make it about them. And God came down and said, my purpose is going to be accomplished, whether with you or without you. Uh, it reminds me of what I learned a long time ago, that it's better to humble ourselves than be humiliated by God. But either way, God is going to accomplish his purpose. He's going to disperse people to reflect his glory because that is what we were created Four. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, the apostle Peter writes this to the church. He says, as obedient children, which is simple, just do what God says. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, set apart, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, from Old Testament to New Testament, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So leave that up there for a second. Uh, I, I think we're going to see several things unfold. Our goal for this series is that we would stand in all of God, that we would recognize that man's best efforts to build the tallest tower is going to fall far short of reaching the throne room of God, both physically and spiritually, because God is set apart above his creation, that he stands alone, which is good because that means he is worthy of worship. If we could reach the throne room of God, if we could be one with God, like if we could be God, God would not be worthy of our worship. But we stand in all of God. We recognize that he is holy. He is set apart. He stands alone. But we stand in all of God so that it changes the way we live today. If we walk out of church where we spend an hour talking about God, singing songs to God, making much of God, and we walk out, and on the way home we think, hmm, that's interesting. 
Like we have let you down. We have missed the mark because when you behold the goodness and power and majesty and holiness of God, it will in fact change the way we live today. Peter says it this way. He says, as obedient children, just do what God says. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He recognizes that which we all recognize, that somewhere along the way we have fallen far short of God's perfect holy standard. We've gotten excited and passionate about things that were contrary to the purpose of God. And he says, you don't have to be conformed to that any longer. Be obedient to God. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And in the back of my mind, as soon as I read that, I think, man, Peter, how in the world am I going to be holy? But he goes on and he says this. He says, and if you call on him as father, we're picking up in, in verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so what Peter's saying is that if you, call, if you call on God as Father, conduct yourselves with fear. That's a reverent fear. It's not that we have to be afraid of God, but we recognize God for who God is. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought back from the feudal ways inherited from, from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, man's efforts or man's riches, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. And, and I love the way Peter takes the whole thing together. He, he sets the bar high. He says, uh, as you think about the Old Testament and the scriptures that command God's people to be holy as he is holy, those, those scriptures, those commands, those instructions, those are for the New Testament church. But you're not going to accomplish that based on your own strength. Because I know, like, I know you and I know me. We leave here with the best of intentions. And we get really excited. We stay in the presence of God. We go home and we think, man, we're going to do it different this week, right? I'm not going to be conformed to the former passions of lust and ignorance and arrogance of my former way of life. I'm going to follow God faithfully. And it works for about 15 minutes. And you wake up and you watch a football game. And next thing you know, right back into your old passions, right? Soon as Steve's dolphins throw an interception, he, he takes him right back to the bad old days. Like, and, he, and he gets frustrated. I'm just kidding. But my point is, like, it's amazing how quickly we can fall back into it when we try based on our own efforts. But Peter says, man, our holiness is not accomplished by some kind of moral aptitude attained by us. Instead, it is, be, is accomplished for us in the person and work of Jesus. And holiness is looking more and more like Jesus as we walk closer and closer with Jesus. That his Holy Spirit goes to work in those he has redeemed to transform us to the image of God that we were created to reflect. That if we've never put our faith in Jesus, today is the day to stop trying to amass silver and gold or build a tower for yourself to reach the holiness of God, but graciously and humbly receive the salvation offered to us through Jesus, by putting our faith in him. And once we put our faith in Jesus, just like Adam and Eve and Noah and every generation since, our goal is to reflect the glory of God. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 12. He says, but you, the church, the redeemed, ransomed by the blood of Jesus, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation 
a people for his own possession. Peter's saying, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are made holy. You now are a holy nation because of the person and the work of Jesus. For the purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. I love that Peter, in this letter to the church, scattered throughout the first century, takes it all the way back to where the story started. God is holy. He is unreachable. He is set apart. He is sitting on his throne, and the creatures that surround the throne shout, holy, 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 forever. God is holy. But you, the church, are also holy. You are set apart, not because of your moral perfection, but because God has made you holy in Jesus. It's the the beautiful picture of what we call imputed righteousness, that God's righteousness was given to us through Jesus because Jesus went to the cross for us and he gave, he took away our sins and he gave us his righteousness so that we can be holy. We can be set apart. In fact, we were called to be set apart so the world can see a God who is set apart. I was studying it this week and I was thinking how humbling it is to think about all the times, like the fools in the Tower of Babylon, I have tried to reach God based on my own efforts. I've never gone to the backyard and tried to build a tower. Man, I've tried based on my own strength and how humbling it is when I fall far short and how grateful I am when God accomplishes his purpose nonetheless. And I recognize so often in my prayer time, God, I see that you are accomplishing your purpose often in spite of me, not because of me, but nonetheless accomplish your purpose through me and your church. As we talk about the holiness of God, it's one of those attributes of God that it just, it can almost make God feel distant. The beautiful picture is that Jesus brought us to the throne room. Hebrews would say, now we as the church, saved by the blood of Jesus, can enter the throne room of God with confidence. We can come into his presence once again, not by our own effort, not by silver or gold, our wealth, our riches, our wisdom, or our own efforts, but because Jesus has graciously invited us in to live a life with the Holy God. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is this week and every week to stand in your presence as your people to make much of you. Father, as we continue to make much of you, I ask that you would make yourself known to us. We recognize that you are set apart. You are holy. You are perfect. And Father, when you feel far from us because we know the effects of our own feeble effort that we would remember the faithfulness of God demonstrated through the person in the work of Jesus Christ. That you would send your only son to draw us close to you. That Father, based on our own efforts, we cannot behold you, but through Jesus Christ, 
you're counted among your people. And Father, I pray that as we stand in awe of you, we would think about how we have the opportunity, the unique privilege to, to be set apart in this world, to point this world to a God who is set apart. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.